I've always been attracted to stories of the macabre, uh, strange. I enjoy stories about paranormal uh, occurrences. Stephen King has written some of my all-time favorite books, The Stand, It, Misery. And you may not realize this, but he has been scaring readers now for nearly 50 years, almost my entire life. I spent so many college summers totally immersed in his books, and I still feel a little scared just thinking about characters like Pennywise, who, by the way, is what my daughter is dressing up for Halloween this year. What I still think is most remarkable about Stephen King's books is his ability to make the ordinary parts of life so ordinary that even a little something out of place, a wood chipper in a basement, suddenly feels terrifying. First time I read a Stephen King book, I had a hard time sleeping for a week, which may make you ask, why would I do that? Well, we're going to discuss that a bit today. The frightened brain, the scared brain, why some of us love feeling that way. What you may know if you're a longtime listener of the show is that I love Halloween. I love the entire season, but I also love the ability for people to step outside themselves in costume. I spend weeks designing a spooky forest in my yard every year for my three daughters. It comes complete with ghosts and goblins and whispering witches and cauldrons of smoking concoctions, sprinkled with little scary surprises throughout. Even as my girls have aged, our spooky forest is one thing that has never grown old. You know, my love of all things creepy started kind of early. Growing up, I was usually first in line for the latest horror flick, I loved the rush of excitement from a jump scare in The Exorcist or getting goosebumps when I'm surprised by some terrifying twist. I know that fear is mostly viewed as a negative emotion, but I also know that it serves a purpose. It activates certain regions of the brain, including the amygdala and the hypothalamus. That prompts the release of hormones that trigger what you call a fight-or-flight response. Now, what happens in our body during that response? Our cortisol levels spike. Our heart rate and our breathing accelerate. We start to sweat. Even your digestive system starts to slow down. All of that had a purpose and served our ancient ancestors well when they were trying to escape whatever was threatening them. But here's the thing. Most days, we don't really need those innate survival instincts. So why do some people like me still have what is called a, quote, sensation-seeking personality? That is a personality that craves stimulation and the dopamine rush that fear releases. So, in honor of the haunted season, I'm going to explore the frightened brain with the king of horror himself, Stephen King. I like the idea of modern horror and things that connected with uh, the world that I understood, because to me, that made him scarier. His latest book is called Holly. And instead of rabid dogs or murderous prom queens, it revolves around something very real, the COVID-19 pandemic. Today on the podcast, why do so many of us treasure terror? What do we get out of it? And what really scares one of the world's most prolific horror writers? I'm scared to death of these murder wasps, and I think that that would make a, a great subject for a horror novel. That's Stephen King. 
And I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This is Chasing Life. Do you like being scared yourself? Like if someone were to come in the door behind you right now, creep in and suddenly, boo, scare you. I mean, is that, is that a feeling you like? No, I like to be in control. I like to be in charge of the scares. I don't necessarily <laughs> like, uh, uh, for instance, uh, here's something. There was about four years ago, uh, my wife said to me, I think there's someone in the house. She had heard this loud crash. And, you know, I did the manly thing. I got up and I grabbed something. I can't remember what it was. And I went downstairs and it had been this big ornamental mirror that had fallen off the wall that chose that moment to fall off the wall. But no, I don't like to be scared myself. But I think that everybody enjoys, uh, kind of a dress rehearsal for really scary things so that uh, you can go to a movie and you can see, uh, you know, the uh, Leatherface guy or Michael Myers or uh, one of those guys in the hockey mask and, and say, well, this is just pretend, but it gives you a chance to sort of uh, test drive those emotions of fear. We enjoy roller coasters and we enjoy the fun house. And that's what I do. I build fun houses. It's interesting that the dress rehearsal component of it, like I think is like, that's a human thing, right? I mean, animals, for example, you can scare an animal, but that's because the animal thinks there is a legitimate threat. You can't sort of, are humans unique in this regard? Is it an indication of higher cognition to be able to be scared by a Stephen King novel? I think I think it is. Uh, you have to say to yourself, do other animals have an imagination? They may have a limited one, but we have these imaginations that can see forward, that can see what might happen. You know, Alfred Hitchcock used to say, if a bomb explodes on the screen, you get five seconds of horror. But if you know that the bomb is under the table, you get 10 minutes of suspense mm. because the human imagination is able to see forward a little bit. In Psycho, we know that mother is in the fruit cellar and we know that eventually Vera Miles is going to go down there. We don't know what's going to happen, but we do know a little bit more than the characters know. And that that's scary. That can be really, really scary. This idea that it's a, a dress rehearsal in some ways makes it sound like, hey, we can be prepared should the real thing, at least psychologically, be prepared. We've gone through a dress rehearsal, but it still doesn't seem like something that would be enjoyable. Like, I'd rather not go through something that is painful just to like people seek out a roller coaster, they seek out a Stephen King novel, a scary movie, whatever it might be. Why? What, what do you think it is? Have you thought about that? Like what's going on in the brain that someone would actually enjoy that? Well, I think it's because there are so many things in life that are really scary. Uh, we're afraid of getting sick, for instance. Uh, 
And so if we go to see a David Cronenberg movie where horrible things just sort of postulate out of the human body, uh, or if we go to see Alien, where all at once this horrible monster comes out of this guy's stomach, then we say to ourselves, oh, this is a dress rehearsal. This is why I'm afraid of, for instance, if I get acid indigestion, you know, we don't think that there's going to be a monster that's going to come out of our belly, but we can see the worst case scenario. So whatever's going with, on with us isn't as bad. Yeah, that's interesting. And I, I think that it gives us a chance to, to uh, express fears that may be inside us. What scares you the most today? Alzheimer's disease. I'm afraid every time that I have to search for a word, uh, my, my mind is my tool. Uh, it's my major tool. And it's also what makes me enjoy life. Uh, you know, everything from my imagination to uh, reading books, to going to movies, to watch something that's streaming on TV. And the idea of losing that or losing my family terrifies me. I have a book coming out next year, a book of short stories that are mostly new. And uh, a lot of them have to do with with people who are old, uh, people with brittle bones. Uh, there's a, a scene in one of the stories where a, 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 an old man is walking along a, uh, a fence and ex- examining his flowers. And the, the narrator hears a crack, like a pistol shot almost. It's the guy's hip breaking and he goes down. And there's a lot of pain involved with that. So I have a tendency to write about what worries me. And right now, what worries me is the drawing away of all your faculties and your physical being, little by little. Uh, <laughs> you know, the song says, time takes your jump shot. It takes everything, really. When you're writing a book, are you thinking about that, that there is a larger message in here, maybe for the reader as well? No, I don't. Uh I think of something that would scare me, and a lot of times uh, it's body horror. It's the idea of somebody being trapped, uh, like uh, the Torrance family and uh, the Overlook Hotel and The Shining. (laughs) I think of those things, and I really want to uh, bring the reader in there and make their pulse pound and basically scare the hell out of them if I can, but I don't think ahead. That's interesting. How long, I'm curious, how long does it take you? I, I mean, I'm sure different books, I mean, the stand is 1,100 pages, if I remember correctly, different lengths of time, but how, do you have a pace of writing? Do you, do you uh, write at a certain time every day? Well, I, yeah, I write at the same time. I usually sit down after a morning walk, <clears throat> which kind of clears my head. And, uh, I'll start work around 8.30 or 9 o'clock and work through until lunch. And then there's a lot of thought time involved, too. Anything from uh, before I go to sleep at night to uh, I could be in the shower 
and think of a connection or think of a scene that I want to write because it's so dark and so fetal in there somehow. It's hot <laughs> and it's it just, you know, it's a great thing to, to think about. But the actual writing time, I would say about three hours a day. And I used to be able to do about 2,000 words in that time. And now I would say it's more like 1,500 or 1,200. I've slowed down a little bit. What about you? What's your schedule? How hard is it for you to write? I'm always curious about that. Well, mo- most of what I've been writing has been nonfiction. And, and in some yeah, ways... still... Yeah, I th- no, I but I think you know what what I I think is interesting is it's 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 more procedural in this way. So I do have I do have time that I set aside for writing, and it's usually morning time. I'm a very early riser, and I usually find that I can get my writing done. And I'll force myself to write every day uh, a little bit. Sometimes I think of it as a uh, a taxi way, where I can get some speed up to where I want to really start, you know, filling up that white space again. And little by little, I kind of click into the story. So sometimes I find things that will surprise myself <laughs> and lines that delight me, actually, uh, doesn't happen too often, but sometimes it does. And that's the mystery of creation. But to the point of where I sit down and I say, well, I have to pick up this dead fish again today and see how it smells. But by the end of the session, sometimes, uh, you know, my wife will call me and say, "Uh, Steve, it's it's lunchtime and I don't want to stop. I, I, I guess she must be able to appreciate that about you. If you're in your groove, if you're in your flow state at that point, yeah, that's that's the last time you you want to stop. Yeah, we've been married a long time. She understands me, probably better than I understand myself. Well, who knew? My wife and Stephen King's wife share that in common. They know us better than we know ourselves. We're going to take a quick break here. When we come back, dealing with the horrors of modern life. We're back with Chasing Life and the King of Horror, Stephen King. I don't know if you you read this fact recently, but there was some recent research showing that people who love horror were also more resilient during the pandemic. Um, These are are hard studies to do. I just want to be totally transparent about that. So I think we got to be careful about how much we read into it. But do you see any connective tissue between those two things? People who love horror having more resilience? Well, I think that your average horror fan is somebody who has honed their imagination uh, a little bit more than uh, people who don't. Uh, Let's say that uh, somebody who just uh, looks at the evening news and calls it good. uh, This is not your cable news junkie. This is not uh, somebody who just wants uh, every now and then a Netflix a rom-com, something like that, but something that's a little bit scary, a little bit strange, off the beaten track, that kind of thing. Uh, You have more of a tendency 
to see the consequences, hmm. the possible consequences. That is to say, uh, if you, at the uh, height of the pandemic, the, uh, the news was showing uh, some hospitals where uh, there were refrigerated trucks for bodies. And I think that a lot of people would say, uh, well, that could never happen to me. I'm not too worried about that. Uh, that's always the other guy. Whereas the person who reads horror fiction or goes to horror movies says, yes, that will probably happen to me. I'll probably wind up in a refrigerated truck. But these same people are more resilient in a way as well. I mean, th th does this get back to the dress rehearsal component of what you were saying? If you are someone who loves horror and you're less likely to be crushed by the events of daily life, you have more resilience to that. that by the way, that's how I often think of a healthy brain or a strong brain. People ask me that. You know what a strong heart is. You know what a strong liver is. You can measure the function of those things. The brain, you know, you ask 10 neurologists, you'll get 11 answers as the joke goes. But I think one thing we can say is that there are some people who are crushed by the events of daily life. And there are some people who are, in fact, strengthened by it. So metaphorically, the brain is more like a muscle to them. It actually gets strengthened by these challenges. People who, at least according to this research, people who are horror lovers were more in that latter category. They were more resilient, more likely to, dare I say, draw strength from those challenges. I think that there's a difference, maybe small but crucial, between the brain, intelligence, and the imagination. Uh, and I think that the imagination can be honed and it can turn into a kind of muscle. Uh, in one of the books that I've written, I, I said, uh, the imagination is a muscle that can move the world, uh, like Archimedes' lever. So I think that speaking directly to the pandemic, uh, the per person with the imagination says, okay, uh, what I'm going to do, like Holly in, in the novel, I I'm going to get vaxxed. I'm going to get double vaxxed. I'm going to wear a mask. Uh, when I take my change from the drive-through, I'm going to wear a, a glove, a nitrile glove. Uh, and the person who doesn't have that strong imagination may just say, well, I'll probably get it anyway. And hmm. I think that's sort of the attitude of a lot of people uh, who don't have that same. Uh, I mean, imagination is a two-edged two sword because, you know, you can be in a situation where you can say, here are the precautions that I can take to avoid getting sick from this disease or some other disease. But at the same time, the imagination may be uh, such that you become uh, obsessive compulsive and you feel like you must wash your hands every 10 seconds, every 10 minutes, you must wash your hands. Uh, you can't go out of the house. Uh, everything is, is out to get you. You see, that's, the dark side of the imagination. But the good side of it is, and I think that horror fans may feel that way, is that 
you're able to take reasonable precautions and watch out for either coronavirus or from uh, Jason in the Friday the 13th movies. They both go together. You know, it, it, it's it's very interesting to to say to someone you need to have the appropriate amount of fear to something. Um, first of all, no, you know, aside from this conversation, I mean, fear is probably not a particularly great motivator for people. Um, fear alone fires up the amygdala of the brain, your emotional centers of the brain. But the actions that result from the amygdala oftentimes bypass the prefrontal cortex, the area where you actually have executive thinking. So you're, it's like a lot of emotion with not as much of a plan that comes out of that. But what is interesting, I find, like if you look at people who are very fearful, for example, of the vaccines, um, it's it's a heterogeneous group of people. They're just going to like kick up dust for, for the heck of it. There's other people that may have some other motivations for why they're behaving financially otherwise. But there are some that I think are are people who just have their antennas raised really high. If we were all just like plant creatures, they were, they'd be ones that had their antenna raised above everyone else's, which means that maybe they see things before everyone else does. But that also means they see, they are likely to see things that don't really exist as well. Sometimes I wonder, Steve, if these two things go hand in hand a little bit. I, I'm, I'm not really sure if there's a question there, but I'm just curious what you think. Well, I think that fear without imagination uh, equals Fox News, that uh, people who are not really strong in the imaginative uh, field are people who have a tendency to grab uh, the latest Internet fear. Mm. Uh, Maybe the most uh, uh, powerful phrase to come out of uh, the last, this century, is fake news. The idea that you can just sort of dismiss the facts of a situation and not have to think about that or fake news. Just, it's just fake news. And then you're all good to go. You can worry about Q or uh, the idea that uh, the vaccines are going to cause heart attacks or that sort of thing. If you were to look at climate change reporting or just climate change stories, one of the criticisms that people will raise is that those are the people, those are the stories that are trying to frighten us. You're trying to frighten us with these cataclysmic projections, apocalyptic sort of scenarios and that sort of thing. You're the ones who are frightening us, not it's not our lack of imagination. It's these unfounded fears. Yeah, this, uh, of course, there is that element. It's just simple practicality. So you use your imagination in a way that's going to be productive. And I think that hard as it may be, you have to follow the science. You have to say to yourself, do you really want to go up the stairs in that spooky old deserted house or not? In reality, the answer is no, I don't. I want to get out of the house. Right, right. Um, I I, I want to talk about Holly, uh, Holly, the character in Holly, the book. At what point did you decide that you wanted to write a book about the pandemic and the politics of the pandemic? It's extraordinary. Again, I read it. Everyone should read it. Um, I don't want to give away too much of what the book's about, but what made you go there? Well, 
Holly was supposed to be a walk-on character in Mr. Mercedes. She was this uh, uh, introverted, uh, almost on the spectrum uh, woman who wrote poetry and pretty much stayed in her room and didn't want to have a whole lot to do with people and was kind of this muttering little plain-faced woman. And uh, there was a scene in that book where it turned out that she knew quite a lot about computers from her own work as a poet and as somebody who had a a business background. Uh, And she meets another character and they work together and she opens up, she brightens up. And all at once you see this potential in this person. And I loved that. But what I liked about Holly was that with every book, you see her come out of her shell more and you see the combination of this person who is timid and a kind of OCD as I say, she's almost on the spectrum, but at the same time, she's she's bright and she's brave. So I like those two things working together. I enjoy a character that has more than one facet. Yeah. Well, and in the beginning, you talked about this earlier, in the be- near the beginning of the book, we do see this scene where she's attending a Zoom f- funeral for her mother. Her mother died of COVID, um, did not believe much in COVID. Uh, was not vaccinated. And there's all these notes that you're striking there about that. And there's this, there, and, and you have Holly who, who who's just flabbergasted at the fact that her, her mom would not abide by these basic public health precautions. Politics and the pandemic. It's, it's, there's a lot in this book, <laughs> but, but those, that issue, what, what made you decide to go there? Well, I wanted to write about the COVID period in a very realistic way. Because Holly was set in the year 2021, which was the height of the COVID epidemic, I had a choice. Either I could ignore that, which would not be realistic at all, or I could lean into it. And I thought to myself, I really want to do uh, almost like a time capsule of what those years were like. And there's some character who says, Nobody would believe what we went through. And Holly says, nobody would believe it at all. And that's that's the case. The funny thing about Holly is she is uh, very uh, punctilious about wearing her mask and she's got a pocket full of gloves, but she's a smoker <laughs> right. because she's, she's nervous and she's... Uh, she wants that cigarette to calm her nerves. The situation is what the situation is. So I just tried to write a good story that had COVID in it because that's the time that the story was set. It wasn't any attempt to try and propagandize anything. I, I'm an entertainer. I'm not a politician. <laughs> it's it's a really scary book. I've had dreams about this book, Stephen, since I've since I've read it. I mean, you have a way of, of, of getting into the dreamscape of people's lives. <laughs> That's good. You know, sitting down to chat with Stephen King was a longtime dream of mine. And I have to say, reading his latest book was really meaningful for me as a journalist who covered and is still covering the pandemic. He makes the case that real life can be just as scary as fiction. 
But I find that artists and authors like Stephen King, what they really do is they make our deepest fears a little bit more tolerable. So that's it for this episode of Chasing Life. Next week on the podcast, long COVID and its effect on the brain. Long COVID is an infection-associated complex chronic illness. That means that depending on your genetic history, depending on your infection history, depending on your past medical history, you will present completely different from the last person with long COVID. That's next time. I do have one more thing, though. We're about halfway through this season of the podcast, and I want to hear from you. Have you been using any of the tips that we suggested for increasing your attention, paid more attention to how much you rest or caffeine you consume? Maybe you have questions about the brain that we haven't yet answered. Well, let us know. Record your thoughts as a voice memo and email them to asksanjay at cnn.com. You can also give us a call at 470-396-0832 and leave a message. We might even include your response on an upcoming episode of the podcast. Thanks for listening. Chasing Life is a production of CNN Audio. Our podcast is produced by Aaron Mathewson, Madeline Thompson, David Rind, and Grace Walker. Our senior producer and showrunner is Felicia Patinkin. Andrea Kane is our medical writer, and Tommy Bazarian is our engineer. Dan DeJula is our technical director, and the executive producer of CNN Audio is Steve Lichtai. Special thanks to Ben Tinker, Amanda Seeley, and Nadia Kunang of CNN Health.